Hey now, people call me Paul. Becky, what do people call you other than Becky or Dr. Matz or 3DL Yoda? Have mm. you been have people given you nicknames over the decades? Mm. Well, Are you they, filtering? They they used to call me, my family used to call me Rebecca until I demanded to be called Becky. And then they called me Becky. They obliged and called me Becky until they would get really mad and then they would revert. Uh, so mostly everybody calls me Becky. Yeah. Or, or in class, uh, when I was teaching in chemistry, they would call me Dr. M, which I liked because there was off-brand Dr. Pepper at Meyer called Dr. M. So that was nice. That really saves them a lot of... Um, lung capacity to say Dr. M instead of Dr. Matz. <laughs> yeah. I wonder yeah. if our guest, I wonder if our guest today has any embarrassing nicknames from his, I'm sure were his crazy college days, right? Mm, I'd love to know. <laughs> let's, let's ask him. Sounds good. Let's not forget. This is probably true about everyone we'll talk to, but you've known our guests longer than I have. What mm-hmm. do you think of when you think of John? I think of John as somebody who is a it works tirelessly on behalf of um the biosci students at the students in the biosci courses at at msu um he's really he's an advocate for students and um and a really excellent uh teacher Ooh, i think i see him coming into the studio now Mm. i I should have cleaned up a little more oh well becky please be nice this episode i will i'm always am Okay. Hi, my name is John Stolzfus, and three-dimensional learning makes me feel hopeful. Hi, John. I don't know if I have ever heard you say your last name out loud. I think I've probably said it wrong every single time. Did you find the place all right? You get a good parking spot? <laughs> you know, in the last year, it's been much easier to find a spot. I'm just not quite sure why. Becky can uh, validate for you on the way out. Yeah. Well, um, I appreciate that. We're going to jump in and probably reel it in a little bit. Do you remember where you were when you first heard about three-dimensional learning? I do not. Uh, <laughs> I think the first time I, uh, I remember engaging with it in a real way would have been the STEM Gateway Fellowship. So I think I know I'd heard about it before then. It was this thing that was out there, um, mixed in with all these other things that were happening as part of the biology initiative, and um, and I know I didn't really engage with it in a meaningful way until the the uh, Gateway Fellowship. Okay. So if you, I know that it's mixed in with other stuff, but if you can go back there, what if we'd asked you to fill in that blank, the um, how you feel blank? What if we'd asked you to fill it in, uh, you know, soon after you had started engaging with it? Do you think it would have been a different word? Uh, It would have been uh, confused. Mm -hmm. I think I would have said the same thing. Okay. Did that count as small talk? Is that good or bad? I don't do that. We're supposed to do small talk, right? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Before we start grilling you though, John, we want to, we need to soften you up some. Um, And I want to just say 
say how much I appreciate some specific things about you. I think you're really unique. And Becky mentioned some things in the intro that you'll have to listen to later, but um, in that you bring some really creative ideas and you're all, you're also able to kind of troubleshoot and get a keen eye for like half-baked plans that some other people might bring. But even more fundamentally than that, there's something that I really admire both about you and Becky. I'll lump you in here, Becky, too. And that is your kind of understated way of just doing what you say you're going to do. And I feel like if we could always do that, and it sounds like kind of a low bar or low-hanging fruit, but I really think <laughs> it would change a lot. But I want to ask you guys while you're both here, and I know this is a hard question, but where do you think that comes from? Um, do you think that's uh, uh, kind of like a, a superpower or a, you know, a trait or a value that you can track down somewhere? So I think part of it is, in a way, home training, upbringing. I mean, that's just how I grew up. Uh, mm. We really valued if you say you're going to do something, you do it. Um, we also really valued humility. And so you do stuff, but you don't put it out there. Uh, that's not always a good thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I don't want to be the person who doesn't hold up my end. Um, part of that is me working very hard to make sure I am holding up my part of the bargain and that I am um, doing my job, essentially. I know I'm, I can speak for everybody, I think. I mean, you're definitely holding up way more than your end of you know our group's work. Thank you. Um, Becky, you have I, no, comment? no I, yeah, I do. Um, I have to think about whether it's coherent or not before I start. Um, I think that I've definitely always had a personality of like, eat the elephant one bite at a time and don't stop until you're done, even if it's not the best way you could be spending your time. It's funny that you mentioned this because I, there was a seminar yesterday, or maybe two days ago with Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book on grit. Um, mm -hmm. that I went to and she was talking about how grit is um, that her elevator pitch for grit is passion and perseverance but over a long period of time and so I think sometimes grit grit gets kind of a bad rap because um, it ends up being sort of like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of argument which it can ignore some systemic factors but mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that you brought it up since I, that was kind of fresh in my mind. She didn't quit in the middle of her talk did she? No, she was like so personable and like super humble. And, you know, I have academic crushes and now I have a cr academic crush <laughs> on Angela Duckworth. So I hope she's listening. If you're out there, email me. Okay, back to our purpose here, which is advertising dollars, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> just podcasting fame and glory. Yeah, probably not. I think there are more podcasts than humans on Earth right now. <laughs> heard that on a podcast at least putting other stuff off yes i told my brother that who's in radio broadcasting that that uh this group was doing a podcast and he said everybody wants to do a podcast <laughs> yep so we'll see we are lemmings okay let's uh let's rewind the tape a little bit let's go back to the last century for a minute john you are a college student um oh first you Becky and I were wondering if you had any nicknames in college. Yes. Uh, <laughs> ones that I can share. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do it. I told Becky. Uh, so, so for a while, uh, I was known as Squirrel. Um, <laughs> it, it has to do with 
climbing up the outside of the building to get into a second story dorm room window. So climber. I was a climber too, John. I didn't know we had that in common. Okay, I like that. But you don't want us to um revive that name, probably. Uh well, yeah. You know, if you I I don't know if you can get it to catch on or not, but (laughs) that's amazing. Okay. Now that now that we got you back there in that place, do you remember what your favorite class was as an undergrad? My favorite class. Well, that depends where I was. So my freshman year, it definitely would have been uh, been my aviation class where I was flying airplanes. Whoa! But but over time that changed. So I do remember this this very distinctly. I took a um, a cell and molecular biology class um, when I was a sophomore. And and just a little bigger history here. I went to a two-year school, um, got an associate's degree, took a year off, um, came back and went to um, went to Purdue and finished my my four-year degree there. And so my second year at this at this two-year college, um, when I after I decided I didn't want to play fly airplanes after all, um, well I do want to fly airplanes, but I didn't want to do that for a career. So um, so I uh, I was just taking kind of a shotgun of classes and I had this molecular biology class and um, and I remember towards the end of the class but it clicks to me wait a minute you know in every cell in my body there is this code and they're cutting it up with these enzymes and doing cool stuff with it mm-hmm. um, and so uh, at, at that point that was probably my favorite class Okay, um, so that first class you're talking about, uh, that was at Purdue or at the... That was at the, the tiny Sphere. tiny school in Heston. It's called okay. H- Heston College. Uh, it has 500 students, and when the students show up, they double the population of the town. And it's, Whoa. It's, so, yeah, quite different than Purdue. Okay, so, John, I want to ask Becky to place a wager on your answer to the next question, but I don't want you to hear her answer, so... Could you just take off, if you take off your headphones, would you be able to hear us? Can you hear know. us? Can I hear you? Can you hear us? No. no. Okay, good. Just wait. I'll, I'll wave you back in a second. Okay, Becky, um, do you know what an over-under bet is? I mean, kind of. I wouldn't <laughs> bet my life on it. <laughs> it's okay. See, there's a number and you got to decide. If you think the answer is above it, it's your, oh, your yeah. bet okay. on the over it. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to ask John how much of that class was 3D. Are you going to take over how did under you know on? To ask me if I knew what an over under bet was. <laughs> I just had to make. I had to make okay, sure. I got it. I got okay, it. Okay, so are you going over under on three percent? Uh, ooh, I'll go under. Okay, all right, John. What? I can't hear you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we have to just hope lip reading isn't one of your hidden skill sets. So back to that class at Heston. The question, is it Heston? I get it that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what percent of that class would would um, be classified as what we would consider to be three-dimensional? Well, well, first you assume I remember anything from the class <laughs> other than what I already just told you. Based on you. <laughs> Based on your but, recollection, but but I, I am sure that uh, very little of the class would be would be three dimensional. I, I mean, I do remember the exams were were mostly multiple choice, which is funny because it was a tiny class. Um, hmm. um, I mean, there was probably fifteen students, maybe in it. Um, like I said, it's a tiny school. Um, uh, 
We need a number though. So what percentage? Okay. Yeah. So let's let let's just let's just say for for argument's sake that there were a few discussions here and there about you know science and that type of thing and and how it's done. Let let's say two percent. <laughs> I win. <laughs> it was over. Uh, we were doing over under, and I put it at three. Thank you, Barely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I what did I you say, Becky? Join, I said, well, I I said under, and then so I guess I didn't guess a number, but I'm gonna go join like Fanduel and bet on some. <laughs> you don't need a number for over under. You're just over under. You got it right. Oh. Okay, so two um, percent three D in your favorite class, but. Uh, most people would argue you turned out okay. So why do we need something different? So, so I think um, there's an analogy which is not great on a lot of lot of levels, but you know some people have said teaching is like you know quote slopping the hogs. You throw it out there, and some of them are aggressive and they go in and they get it, mm -hmm. and some you know, are, are not as aggressive and they're not, they're not going to get it. Um, and, and so, so there are, there, I, I really do believe there are a set of students um, who are going to figure it out no matter what. And I think that probably most faculty members fall into that category mm -hmm. for whatever reason, um, internal, external, who knows, they were interested in this. They were curious about this and they were doing three-dimensional learning on their own outside of class in men, in most cases um, to be able to get a hold of this stuff. They were wrestling with the problem sets in, in three-dimensional ways. They weren't just solving for a numeric answer. They were trying to figure out what it meant and why they had to do this. Um, and so I do think that explicitly putting three-dimensional learning into classrooms are going to benefit those students because it's going to give them a better framework to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it. So it will benefit those students. Um, but part of the reason I turned out the, the way I did um, is because I got interested in this stuff. And, and so I started creating models in my head because I wanted to know how it worked, right? Um, and because of that, I turned out okay, but there's a huge swath of students for whom um, what they're really passionate about and interested in isn't directly aligned with the course content in the way that it did, it clicked for me for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, and so those students need a little more scaffolding to be able to really get a hold of the material and be able to use it in the places where they are passionate, where they are trying and, and, and working, you know, doing the mental, the, the mental um, gymnastics it takes to really learn something. And so I think that using a three-dimensional framework um, to scaffold instruction and to, to, um, to help those students see what they're trying to achieve um, is really beneficial for, for a much larger swath of the students in the class than the non-three-dimensional learning where in most cases, um, I don't think the students are really taking all that much from the class when they finish it. It's like a checkbox that they need to do. Um, whereas I think, and, and when I, you know, in the introduction, I said that three-dimensional learning makes me feel hopeful. And the reason for that is as an instructor, it helps me think about the teaching, the content, and, and I'm a biochemist. I love the little details. 
um, <laughs> to the place where the students' eyes very quickly roll back in their heads. Uh, <laughs> but but it gives me a framework, and hopefully it gives them a framework to where um, the details are are important, but there's a reason they're important. They start providing. Um, mechanisms and explanations that then let them see how a lot of things can work rather than this one little detail that we were looking at. Whereas if you're just memorizing these details, there's nothing there to hold them together. They have no meaning to you. Um, whereas with three-dimensional learning, if if you're grabbing on to um, the tools that are provided um, as when that's part of the curriculum, you can start using this in other ways and applying what you've learned, those core ideas you're learning to things you are really passionate about or you are interested about. I think we've given everyone a chance to provide us with their quick elevator pitch or quick the quick rundown on what 3DL is. Could you do that? Could you share yours with us? Yeah, so to me, uh, 3DL is, is a framework that in my mind helps me sort of operationalize how I teach. So. Um, active learning, uh, I, I think you don't learn if you're not being active. I think there's enough data from cognitive psychology and, and learning sciences that if you're just sitting there and not really engaging, thinking about the material, you're not going to learn anything. So active learning is great, but what are you learning and how are you learning it? And so to me, 3DL gives a, f a framework of what should be happening in that activity, in those activities. Um, and it provides this structure that lets us think about what really is important. What are those core ideas? Um, what, when the students are being, you know, in that period of activity, what should they be doing with those that's going to be meaningful? And then uh, the cross-cutting concepts help us frame those or look at those core ideas and those active and those and those science practices in um, in ways that can help us connect or help us or help really the students connect these across disciplines. Because for so many students, um, and myself included when I was a student, you have, you know, you have this class and you have that class. And yeah, there should be some connection between them, but you're studying for this class and you're studying for this class. You're not thinking about how it connects to that class. And so um, I, I see it as a, a real opportunity to start working with, with instructors across classes and making those explicit connections between the courses um, so that the students can then start seeing those. And now they're not just studying for this class, they're understanding that they're studying for both classes at the same time, or that they're leveraging things they learned in a prerequisite class to do something in this new class because we've made it obvious to them we're using these connections through three-dimensional instruction. Okay, I was going to say we've thrown around these words, but you just did a little more than that. So core ideas, scientific practices, <clears throat> cross-cutting concepts. Um, could you uh, describe, let's think about the disciplinary core ideas for a second in your context. Could you describe one of these in from like a lower division biology class at Michigan State, maybe on a, at a level that like a, the typical Michigan State freshman uh, could follow? Yeah, so, so I think one of the uh, core ideas in, in biology is the idea of information flow or information transfer, biological information being genetic information. I mean, at this point, I think probably in kindergarten, they're talking about DNA. Um, and, and so this idea that there's DNA there and that DNA contains information is, is um, something that I think most people are familiar with. But, um, but then 
being able to take that idea that there's information in the DNA and connect that to what's happening in, um, in, in, in human phenotypes, why do humans look the way they do based on that genetic information? Uh, why do we have variants of the coronavirus? I mean, really, they're the same, they're the same question. The underlying mechanism is exactly the same. Um, and so uh, really understanding that core idea of genetic information and how that, how that um, is used by cells or viruses within cells to, to create the end product um, is a really important core idea that lets you explain huge swaths of biology. Were you part of the, what have been called disciplinary discussions, which to me makes it sound like they happen in the principal's office, where they, um, <laughs> where there was some consensus formed around what that set of core ideas should be? Yes, I was, I was part of that group. And it was, it was back in that time when I probably couldn't have told you what 3D, 3DL meant. Um, Cause it was, um, like I said, mixed up with several different initiatives that were happening on campus. Um, but I, I do remember um, being in, 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 in several different meetings, one of which um, where we were trying to kind of narrow things down at the end, um, where we had a big whiteboard and we had sticky notes and we're, we're kind of arguing about what fits with what and what really are the big ideas. And so, yeah, I was part of that conversation. I know you don't know the answer to this, but what do you think if everyone had written down their thoughts before all that, that whole all that brainstorming, do you think that would have been different from person to person? Or do you think that? Well, based on the sticky notes, um, I would say, yeah, there was a lot of differences between hmm. people. Um, and, and in the group and, and myself at that time, I think we had a real difficulty distinguishing between core ideas and topics. I mean, the traditional biology course is based on topics they come from the textbook and these are the topics you teach. And so there was quite a bit of discussion about, well, is that really a core idea or is that a topic? Um, I mean, DNA replication, it's a topic, right? It's not really a, an idea. It's part of this idea of how biological information is used and transferred. Um, but DNA replication is not the, the core idea or the big idea. Mm -hmm. But I don't think a lot of people in the group, myself included at that time, really had a good understanding of what the difference was. And so I'm not sure there was enough people in the group at the time that that discussion was taking place who understood really what a core idea was. And it wasn't the fault of the people leading the charge here. They tried their best, but, <laughs> but biologists are kind of entrenched in the way they think oftentimes. And so, yeah, I remember being in the room. Yeah. I think part of what happened too was the, the two introductory level courses sort of engaged in that process separately it was a few maybe a year or two later when um you know a group on the 3dl team essentially said well we kind of need just one list if we're going to think about biology as um as its own discipline although it's funny because then in a lot of the subsequent analyses we've still kept those um courses separate but um yeah that sort of merging process was tricky yeah, and you you were there for those conversations, Becky, weren't you? As kind of a as a as a, a note taker and observer. Yeah, that was the um, that was the ones that I was thinking of when I said uh, I knew them because I was pregnant. Those were the ones. Yeah. <laughs> I was very <laughs> pregnant, and then I left for a while. But I had a good partner in crime, 
um, Sarah Hardaleza, who, mm-hmm. um, who, um, you know, was there too. And we got to brainstorm about a lot of ways to kind of help those different um, efforts move along. So, yeah. So here's where you can say, Hey, Sarah, if you're listening to this, we oh, miss you. <laughs> I know. I do miss Sarah. She taught me. Oh, yeah. She, she was awesome. Yeah. She was very foundational to a lot of the things that mm-hmm. are still happening. And she makes me look disorganized, which I don't appreciate, but she does. She's so organized. That's incredible that, that, that anybody can make you look disorganized. Well, she in spades, she does. So, yeah. Now I fear this woman. <laughs> you should. She's, she's awesome. Um, it's interesting because Stuart, I asked Stuart basically the same questions about the physics discussions. And he said um, something like, in the end, we came up with like the same list as anybody, any physics department would have come up with. But well, but you know, I, that's interesting because if if you look at intro physics courses from institution to institution, I think, and I may be talking out of turn here, but I've talked to Stuart about this. They're not a lot different. Physics one, physics two, they all look the same in terms of topic lists and order. And I mean, there's. There's a, a sort of a, a standard physics curriculum. Mm-hmm. If you look at intro bio courses, and I have to do this because I do equivalencies, they are all over the place mm-hmm. in terms of what topics they put in and what order they teach them in bio one and bio two, and whether they cram you know, a, everything that we do in two semesters into one semester and then do like a whole bunch of taxonomy and, and comparative anatomy and whether physiology is in there or not. And so... In a way, Stuart might be right. When you take any group of intro physics teachers, they might come up with a similar list. I don't think it's true for biology. I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's not true for biology. Yeah. It's funny. I hadn't really thought about this, but um, I can remember my freshman year biology courses in the, you know, the big giant lecture hall. And it just made really, it was just memorizing. Um, and I, I would go there because I, I was still, you know, I was still a freshman. I hadn't been uh, turned yet. <laughs> I still go to the class, but I was. It was early, and I was. I was struggling. Um, you are also um, well known far and wide as the master of bringing the um, the modeling scientific practice to these college level biology courses. Does that does that mean that every semester you have your students build a a Plato cell model? Well, well, that would be really fun, <laughs> but, but no, we've never had them build mo- uh, Plato models. Um, and, and so part of what that brings up is, is, is what, it, what is a model, you know? So I've, I've actually, uh, my, my wife used to teach high school chemistry and so I'd be in and out of the high school and, and, and they, I walked into the, the biology room and they had these, you know, models of cells with, you know, all these balls and sticks and, you know, all the organelles there. And, um, you know, from, from the standpoint of kind of the common definition of a model, that is a, it's a great model. It's three-dimensional, you know, it shows where everything is located. Um, but in terms of, of the science practice of modeling, it, it doesn't really serve any purpose until you start using it to do something. But when it's just hanging there, you know, from the ceiling as a three-dimensional, cool, like, um, uh, I don't even know what they're called, hanging from the ceiling. But anyhow, 
3D learning, John. Yeah, it's three-dimensional, so it must be 3D learning, right? Um, so anyhow, when it's just hanging there, it's it's not really a scientific model until it's being used. But it's it's not the drawing. It's not the art. That doesn't matter. It's it's what you're doing. Are you using to explain something? And then really, if it's a, it's a good model, you can use it to predict what happens when you break something. And by break something, I don't mean like, you know, physically break it. But if, if something in the process no longer works the way it used to work, how does that change the outcome? To me, the media in which you're constructing the model, I mean, there is importance there, but that's much less important than what you are doing with the model and the ideas that that model is conveying. Okay, so we need, uh, I'm not going to... Um... I'm not going to read our checklist, our criteria, but we need some phenomena, some representation of something happening. And then you're saying we have to use that to do something. And I think I'm with, I think I'm with you so far. There's a, a, a level beyond that. Right. Um, and you mentioned a little bit, but what do you, when we talk about um, reasoning, what, how does that play into this? Yeah. What is reasoning? Right. Yeah. There's a, there's mm-hmm. a, there, there's a whole nother podcast series on what mm-hmm. is reasoning, right? What I think about uh, what is reasoning, uh, at least in this context, uh, pulling out the little bits that, that are pl- sort of players in what's happening and, and what they're doing, uh, how they're doing it, and how that all works together to create this, this phenomena that you're actually uh, interested in. So, yeah, so that's, that's how I would think about reasoning in this context. Sorry, hang on a second. It's not me. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Oh, hi. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay. All right, yep. Bye. Sorry. That was um the mother of one of the cross-cutting concepts. She's Upset we keep neglecting your child. John, could you <laughs> say something to um, pacify her? The mother of one of the cross-cutting concepts. That Which poor one? Neglected, that poor neglected child. Well, they're all kind of, you know, out there as orphans, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, it, actually, in all of these bins, the, the, the uh, core ideas, the cross-cutting concepts, the science practices... Um, there's some that really resonate with me and, and I'm able to get my head around them. Um, probably because where, you know, where I come in terms of my disciplinary expertise and other things from my background, um, uh, you know, uh, information flow and structure function. I mean, those are my go-to core ideas in terms of, in terms of biology and, and modeling and explanation, um, are my kind of go-to science practices. Um, uh, in part because I don't teach a lab class and some of the science practices are not that they can't be done in lecture, but they just tend to lend themselves toward the lab class. Um, and, and in terms of uh, the cross-cutting concepts, um, the, the one that, that, uh, um, that I'm able to get my head around best is, um, is cause and effect. Um, and I believe the subtitle there actually includes mechanism in it. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me, that is where I'm able to say, um, 
I can get my head around that as a lens to look at explanations, to look at models, to look at models of structure and function, to look at models of information flow. Um, uh, the work I do with um, Melanie Cooper and Tammy Long and Christina Swartz um, across the uh, chemistry and the different um, intro biology courses, um, that's the lens which we kind of can connect things across and, and get and, and have our students try to do kind of similar things with different content. And so um, that's the one I, that's one where I can really get my head around some of the others. Um, I, I think there's potential there, but the way they're defined is, is potentially a little too narrow for me. So for example, systems, I mean, they want you to talk about, you know, what's in the system, what's outside the system. There's some pretty strict criteria there that, it's just the way I think about it in biology, we never do that. And so it never mm -hmm. seems to fit. Mm -hmm. um, but systems are really important in biology. And so either maybe we should start thinking about the systems in biology in that, in that way, through that lens, or maybe that lens needs to be adjusted a little bit or ground a little differently mm -hmm. so that it does actually kind of cut across the way biologists think about systems and physicists think about systems and chemists think about mm -hmm. systems. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so there, 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 there's, there's our orphan children there. <laughs> I will say it was um, very. I, I felt it was a. I had a professional growth experience at um, a NARST National National Association of Research and Science Teaching Conference a few a, a few years ago, maybe two. And there was this big session with um, different groups of people talking about essentially different ways to conceptualize and operationalize the cross-cutting concepts. And it was just very illuminating to me that this like professional society was kind of trying to figure it out, you know, and it made me feel like, um, it just made me feel like I was in the middle, I was in the middle of like that edge of knowledge of the science education community. And so, um, you know, I, edge. Yeah, yeah, it was a bleeding edge. And, and it makes me think about too, you know, in grad school, I took a couple of classes with Joe Krejcik and, um, you know, at that time we were talking about standards from I think the National Science Education Standards from 1996 or something like that. And so that was the document, how do you say it, du jour? That was the document du jour. And now, right, 3DL and the framework, that's the Kool-Aid right now. And that works and it's very functional and productive, but it's not like, you know, that's not going to be the thing in 20 or 30 or 40 years. It's going to be different. It's going to, you know, it's going to get better. Um, so it's okay that we're all a little confused about the cross-cutting <laughs> concepts. Plus we need something to rag on, you know? Ah. What's the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm, that sounds good. I'll have that. <laughs> yeah. You know where that's from? No, of course not. No. Dumb and dumber. Well, the, um, Maybe the superficial good news for someone trying to make their class more 3D is, in our hands at least, if you build your course around a solid set of core ideas and intentionally support students in using the practices, then one of those cross-cutting concepts is probably like hanging on under the car for the ride. Yeah. You know? Yeah. From some of the work in Melanie's group, we're pretty sure that it takes longer than a semester of one class to really shift students' scientific thinking. Could you tell us, and you've done a lot of this, could you tell us about some of the work you've done to avoid students experiencing that kind of one-off 3DL class? So like uh, we're talking about vertical alignment here, basically, say the experience of a, a student going from freshman, sophomore, you know, on up. 
Yeah, and 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 so I I am have have drunk the Kool Aid on this as well. So Melanie has convinced me of this, or just my experience has convinced me of this, um, that changing one class is is of limited value. And so I think the place we really need to do the place we really need to go is to be thinking is to and and is to get instructors just quit thinking about my class and to start thinking about the curriculum mm -hmm. writ large and where my class fits in that curriculum. For one thing, it's going to, I think, help them shed some of the content because they don't think they have to teach everything that a student who's going to graduate needs to know about this topic because, in fact, they're going to get it other places as well. Um, but then I also think um, if we start getting instructors who are teaching these different courses that should be connected and in our minds are connected, but are not really explicitly connected. If we get instructors in those classes to start talking with each other and, and building content that's three-dimensional across those courses, then we have a much, much greater chance of students saying, oh, wait a minute, this, if I'm gonna make a claim, I can't just say this is what I think in science. I have to support that with evidence and I have to be able to reason about how and why that evidence is actually supporting this claim I'm making. Um, this is what scientists do. We did it in chemistry. We did it in bio one. We did it in bio two. We did it in organic chemistry. We did it in biochemistry. This is what scientists do, right? And so, uh, so I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that that's what we have to do. Uh, so just to talk about sort of structural challenges at large universities like Michigan State, um, there's five sections of the intro cell molecular biology course taught by instructors who come from four or five different departments. And sometimes they teach it for one or two semesters and then they're done and we have somebody new coming in. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first challenges um, is if you're going to have a vertically aligned curriculum, you have to have horizontal alignment across the sections. Um, and so um, I, I think that the efforts of the 3DL group and, and the biology initiative before that at Michigan State have really allowed us in biology to, 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 we're not, I mean, what is there? We've certainly moved in the direction that now these sections are closely enough aligned that instructor, instructors are doing enough of the same kinds of things that we can now start connecting across the biology courses. And we already are also building connections to the chemistry courses. Um, but to do that, you have to really get the instructors thinking about my course is a piece of this larger curriculum. It's not just my course, right? Um, and what the students are learning here has to be connected to these other things, which it's hard. It starts constraining what you can do and what you can't do. Um, it, it means you have to take time to talk to people you would have never talked to before. But it's also really exciting and really cool because you get to talk to people that you've never talked to before and you get to learn stuff you, you, you didn't really know about before. Um, and, and so I really do think that um, that's where this has to go. It has to move away from I'm going to design a lesson that's three-dimensional. I'm going to design a course that's three-dimensional. I mean, that's where you have to start. But for this to be really meaningful for the students, it needs to be we're designing a curriculum that's three-dimensional across these courses um, through the students' entire experience at, at Michigan State. I have an idea, and it's totally impractical and is crazy, but 
I feel like it could totally change the teaching fabric of an institution, of an institution that's large enough like MSU um, for this to happen. And it's where, imagine an instructor teaches sort of, you know, whatever their typical course is. This really only works with long-term instructors. They teach whatever course they teach. They teach Gen Chem, right? But then if you imagine like a plus sign, right? If Gen Chem is their center course, they teach the they teach a sister course on either side, right? Maybe they can teach an intro physics course, or maybe they can teach, you know, the history of science or something. They teach some sister courses at the same level. And then they and then maybe they also teach up and down the plus. They teach Orgo, and then they could teach, you know, a pre-general chemistry class or or even um, like algebra something like that. And I feel like, I just, I feel like it could be such a powerful way to build the fabric of a, of a teaching, you know, of a teaching institution, but it's completely impractical. Um, and so I've convinced myself already that it doesn't work, but maybe I'm just looking for um, a sympathetic ear to say it's a good idea or that it could one day well, happen somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, I think if you look at a smaller schools that that kind of thing does happen. Hmm. Um, and, but at MSU, you know, I think, well, yeah, how could we make that happen? And, and I, I don't see a clear route to making that happen, but I think that, that there are instructor, I mean, okay, every instructor I've ever worked with, and I've worked with a lot of instructors, they, they all care about their students and they all want to do a good job and help mm -hmm. their students learn. Sometimes there's real philosophical difference about what that means or what that looks like. Um, but, you know, with the Gateway Fellowship at MSU, there's there are instructors out there scattered across the curriculum who now at least have some understanding of three dimensionality. And so in this plus, if rather than having instructors teach up and down and across the plus, if you just have those instructors start collaborating with each other and talking yeah, to each true. other, um, maybe you could accomplish something similar. It may not be quite as powerful as having the same instructor. I, and it might be more powerful if the students are seeing this from different instructors, getting a yeah. very coherent message. Uh, I, I, I I like it. I, like I said, I... Um, Based on you know limitations in MSU, I'm not sure how you get the same instructor to do that. But if we could get networks of instructors to do that, I think that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I find uh, I think the most exciting about John's work is that he's, man, he, it's easy to hand ring about why we can't do this, but he's shown in a relatively short amount of time that you can get people talking to each other and horizontally and now vertically too. So it's. I haven't been here that long, but I can, t I can tell that I'm like seeing this progression happen right in front of us. It's really cool. Um, I want to let you go soon because we can only validate parking for an hour, but um, I'm wondering if you would play um, three-dimensional learning, would you rather for a minute before we go? Well, considering I have no idea what this game entails, why not? <laughs> You've never heard of would you rather? Uh, afraid not. I'm, pretty oh, cool okay. it's, on, it's, on many it's... different things <laughs> well you're given two options and you have to pick one okay that's the quick version okay so we're going to start with assessments thinking about assessments and instruction would you rather write some summative assessments or plan instruction say for the same amount of time say for two hours of your life wow that's tough <laughs> No, I, because they're both, I, I actually enjoy doing both of them um, quite, quite a bit. Um, uh, 
you have the right job, John. <laughs> I, I, I do. Well, unfortunately, I teach a lot less than I used to. But um, uh, so, um, yeah, I know this is supposed to be quick and easy, right? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I would rather write the summative assessments. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we might have to um, do some kind of in-depth case study on John. Again, <laughs> a little more. Okay. Um, sticking with that same theme though, would you, so would you rather use our 3DL tools, the lap and the lap to analyze somebody else's summative assessments or analyze their instructional videos? Oh, definitely the assessments. Okay. <laughs> and why? Just so that uh, people hear it. So, so um, Okay, I'm a biochemist. I like things to be really sharp and clean, like bands on a gel, if possible. Mm -hmm. And 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 to me, the 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 3D lap, the the assessment uh, uh, evaluation protocol is is much more robust, and it's it's easier to apply. And 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 I have more confidence when I'm applying it. Um, teaching is messy, and watching those videos is messy, and and really trying to understand what the students are are given the opportunity to do and what they're not is, is really hard. Mm -hmm. And so maybe this is me shying away from the hard work, but um, I, I just much prefer the, the, to me, the much cleaner, much more um, uh, sort of direct thing that I can do when I'm looking at assessments. It's funny. I don't think of bands on as band, bands on a gel as being super, clear cut but <laughs> they're better than video that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> um well yeah that you know there's other stuff that that you know we're realizing now you can't, just looking at one hour of video of somebody's classes is hard to know the context sometimes okay mm -hmm. um one more about assessments and instruction would you rather see a course that you're say in your um department or in biosci with 3D assessments and 0D instruction, or would you rather see a course with 0D assessments and 3D instruction? It's it's an impossible choice. <laughs> um, I mean, Oof. yeah, ne neither of them works. I mean, mm -hmm. neither of them works. I, I refuse okay. to choose. You punt. Okay, you can't punt on this next one. This is the last one. Well, kind of last one. Um, and this is the one I've asked one other person. So we have a, I don't know if you've heard about this, but we've been developing this magic 3DL wand that instantly converts a traditional instructor into a 3DL believer and master. But we only have enough uh, battery power for it to work a hundred times before it <laughs> dies. So would you rather wave the wand over 100 faculty in one institution or wave the wand over 100 faculty in 100 institutions? Uh, 100 faculty in one institution. Uh, I think for this to work, I mean, it goes back to what I talked we talked about earlier. I think that one class is going to have limited impact on students, and so you know, you do it at 100 institutions, and there's one instructor um, at those institutions, and unless they're real superstars and they're able to actually convert lots of other instructors, which is really hard mm -hmm. to do if you're an island, um, there's going to be, I would say, very limited impact on students writ large because those students go through, you know, those hundreds of different, hundreds of different institutions go through this one class and it's a blip on their radar and it never really, they never really get a hold of it. Whereas if you do a hundred at 
you know, one institution, um, those students are going to be, I mean, it's going to hopefully saturate that curriculum and the students coming out of that institution are going to, um, I think, have a much uh, deeper and richer understanding of what this is, and you'll have a, a larger impact. I mean, I'd actually probably divide it between 30 instructors at three institutions, <laughs> but I know that wasn't a choice. Not um, allowed. <laughs> no, we're trying to keep things clean and clear like your gels. <laughs> All right. So then one, not about 3DL, would you rather wake up in the middle of an unknown desert or wake up on a rowboat on an unknown body of water? Oh, definitely on a rowboat in an unknown body of water. <laughs> Could we develop a, a model to and run some simulations to predict which of those situa situations we'd last longer in? Oh, it, it, it doesn't really matter. I would just rather die out on the water than die in a <laughs> desert. So oh <laughs> These would you rathers right. are like uh, the frog and toad story about <laughs> eating cookies. And they say, let us have just one very last cookie and then we will stop and then they always eat another one which is very cute i'm just gonna say so was that really the last cookie or do i get one more no it's the last one the oh, birds one come eat in? them at the end the birds come and eat them at the end so it's over there there are some like really sick ones like you know <laughs> that you can find whatever you want on the internet but all right john thank you very much for your time we really appreciate you and everything you're doing for your students and um keep it up we're we'll ha we're happy to keep on watching what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, this was fun. I'm still not sure I'll listen to it, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care.